Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. It's good to see you, gifted ones, and um, I guess that's what we're here for today is to open the gift. And I did make a sentence that I think I can read. And that is, gift is a, and then I was a little bit stumped, like gift is a, gift is a giving, and then I have in parentheses detached, and then I put in, gift is a displacement event outside, and then I have in parentheses or inside, the realm of exchange. So it's mm. outside or it's inside the realm of exchange, which we can talk about, that operates mysteriously, distinct mm. from present, which I put into quotes, and which, you know, we need to figure out what the present is. I write, it comes out of nowhere. Mm. So that, I like that. that was what. Yeah, yeah, I wrote that down. And then I, I wrote down relative to present, that present, uh, which comes from the Latin, blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> present, you know, right. It means time and literally means being there. And then I wrote down encircling that to offer in the presence of. So a present is something that is offered in the presence of of one in the presence mm -hmm. of somebody else to whom you're giving mm -hmm. and so therefore that still remains within the within the realm of exchange where there's a conscious displacement there's some kind of exchange you know how it is sometimes when you give a birthday present it's an obligatory act you feel obliged to give a, a christmas a birthday present you know whatever the present right that's very different and it's exchangeable. It's, you know, you get you give a birthday present, somebody else is going to give you one. And, and it's still within that realm of exchange, which comes from the 14th century, the uh, exchange, the word. It's the old French. But what's interesting is that it's a carryover from Latin. And it's actually a Celtic word, which means to bend, or it means a crook. It means to bend. And that, that word in its Proto-Indo-European form is Proto-Indo-European and how you get change from, from that word. Um, but one of its cognates is can't, C-A-N-T. I'm sorry, this is a little bit of a, an excursion, but it's a good one. It uh, comes from can't, which of course comes from the Latin canary, uh, <laughs> which is like to sing. You know, just sitting like a canary, right? Canary. Mm -hmm. But the can, um, as it was perceived in the century, um, we were trying to put a lot of fences and borders around things. Can't is ascribed to be the jargon of criminals and tramps, whom I equate with uh, none other than Thoreau's Fourth Estate. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. But the can't also, you get canter. Hmm. For example, in, the, in Jewish practice, you have a cantor. 
So I think there's something prejudice. What is it? Anti-Semitism. Yeah, it's anti-Semitic. Yeah, totally. Oh yeah, it's a it's a clear instance of that. What is? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> calling Kant to be part of this underworld language and this uh, oh. language outside of the bounds of polite discourse. It's Can differentiated you... from slang, which is considered to be polite, you know, like slang is kind of an abbreviation thing. But can't is this special form of language that, you know, as I say, is derived from this word that we have uh, called chance. So there's something criminal and something outside of society in the realm of reversal, in the realm of mirrors. It is associated with the word gift in terms of gift being outside the realm of exchange. I mean, mm -hmm. when you're dealing with the realm of gift, you're entering the house of mirrors where hmm. Hermes lives. And he also is the god of chance. Of chance uh, occurrences and of chance some, you know, gifts of happenstance. Yeah. That was one so of the things I was trying to figure out when I was contemplating this question, I was thinking like, what exactly is a gift? Does it require that it has to be given by a person? Like two days ago, I was walking down the street in Phoenicia. I came upon this, uh, it looked like a yard sale in front of someone's house. It was just a bunch of stuff sitting in boxes in front of their house. So I looked through them. I took this CD by uh, Kenny Barron and Charlie Hayden called Night in the City. Now I'm listening to it after I washed it three times so I could actually work in my CD player. I'm listening to it and I'm thinking, is this a gift? First of all, it might have been a yard sale. They might have been just that they went inside for a few minutes when I happened to pass. I might have stolen it from them. But let's say it wasn't stolen from them and they did put out all this stuff in their front yard for anyone to take. Is that a gift? Is it a gift from the universe to me? Is it a gift from these people to me? It gets a little unclear whether there has to be a person giving you the gift in order for it to be a gift. I don't it's think a little bit kind of what you're talking about, I think. Yeah, uh, go ahead, Andrew. I do have something directly that you, addresses that question. You respond with your, um, your, your direct well, the, text. We spoke previously about this author named Lewis Hyde, and he wrote a book called The Gift. Oh. And, yeah, I spent some time searching my bookshelves to try to find it, because I know I have a copy, and I couldn't find it, which is also related to the dark side of The Gift. But <laughs> I might have given it away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I did find Lewis Hyde's book, Trickster Makes This World, with a subtitle, Mischief, Myth, and Art. And hmm. I did look up Gift, and it landed me to his chapter entitled, appropriately, Sparrow, The Lucky Find. Oh. And then there's, yeah, 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 I don't want to go too far. I wouldn't mind circling back to this, but the quote with which this chapter begins is from Paul Valere, mm. and it is... The bottom of the mind is paved with crossroads. Wow, that's great. Yeah, I know. 
Yeah, yeah. That's what's good about Lewis Hyde books is they're full of um, good quotes. And then the first section of this chapter is entitled A Gift of Hermes. So I believe that that CD you found mm-hmm. potentially is a gift of Hermes, assuming mm. that you make something of it. Yeah, well, I'm listening to it. That is making something of it, I would say. I'm making the dishes cleaner while I listen to it. Do you like it? Is it a good CD? Do you like the music? Are you responding to the music? It's a really good question. I mean, I feel like I can't admit this even to myself, but since you're asking me directly, I have to be honest. It's 96, 1996. It feels like Charlie Hayden is a little past his prime. I kind of worship Charlie Hayden. But it's like he starts his solo, and I'm like, whoa, it's Charlie Hayden. He's so great. And then by the end of the solo, I've completely lost track. I've stopped listening. Like, I, I kind of lose the thread of it. It's so minimalistic and seems to be going nowhere. And Kenny Barron is, like, overly ornate and kind of frilly and too kind of old-fashioned jazzy for me. Like, he seems a little worse because he's playing with, Charlie Hayden, whom you associate with the greatest musician who ever lived, Ornette Coleman. So it's like it's like you just find yourself thinking, like, what does Charlie Hayden think of all these like stupid arpeggios? Like, doesn't he think this guy's kind of cornball? I mean, there's moments where it's absolutely fabulous, and just listening to it as a gift, as a find, is a great experience. But, you know, these are my, what's the word, uh, you know, critiques of it. <laughs> uh, this is uh, a little bit of what's called looking the gift horse in the mouth. <laughs> yeah, I know. I wouldn't normally do it, but Andrew sort of pushed me into it. Wow, that was wonderful um, reflection. Thank you. Oh, oh you're welcome. Thanks. <laughs> so just... To uh, switch gears, um, Andrew, what did you find? Well, I was sort of interested in the um, the place of the gift within Pauline theology, within the, the letters of the Apostle Paul. For some reason, my mind, my mind went there. Um, in particular, um, his first letter to the Corinthians, which is a pretty well-known letter. And I'm thinking um, in particular about chapter 12 where Paul outlines this um, conception of a um, spiritual gift, that, that, that every person is born with some touch of distinctness, some um, unique capacity. It's not so much of an idea, more of a capacity that's present in every person and that has um, a divine origin. And he refers to um, this as a spiritual gift. And I'm going to read some, um, with your permission, from... The first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12, just a few verses. Quote, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Ye know that ye were Gentiles carried away unto these dumb idols, even as ye were led. Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God called Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the spirit, 
the word of wisdom. To another, the word of knowledge by the same spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit. To another, the gifts of healing by the same spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and the same self-spirit dividing to every man severally as he will. And God hath set, set some in churches, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, have all the gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet shew I unto you a more excellent way. I, my apologies for the um, archaic translation. Huh. I, I like the archaic translation. I prefer archaicism yeah. in my particular theory. I like that. But I, I, yeah, I, archaism sort of slows it down. You mm. know, you got to feel the words go down a little bit more. So, it's yeah, I agree. I know James Baldwin, who, of course, was deeply influenced by the, um, the Christian tradition, Pentecostal tradition, um, writes about this, um, uh, refers to this as human distinctness, that the uh. no, distinctiveness, the distinctiveness, the unique capacity that is inborn in every person um, and that uh, needs to be excavated and discovered over the course of one's life um, cycle in order for that person to reach his or her final form, if you will. Where is that? Do you know where Baldwin says that? Yeah, Notes on a Native Son. Oh, okay. Notes on a Native Son, um, the uh, autobiographical essay uh, on the um, the origin of Go Tell It on, on a Mountain. Go Tell uh -huh. It on a Mountain. Yeah. Native Son is um, Richard Wright. Right. Yeah, right. Note Notes of a Native Son. The Notes of a Native Son, I think that's the essay. Yeah. Where he writes about human distinctiveness. James Baldwin himself traveled to Europe. In his case, it was to France in order to discover his own distinctiveness at a certain point in his um, evolution as a writer. I think he was maybe in his late 20s or early 30s. But the Pauline notion is only, uh, I think, um, to, you know, right below the surface of um, what James Baldwin was, write, was writing about in, in this essay. Yeah, what, um, I, what I sort of heard from the Pauline quote was the sense of the gift of the divine, sort of like a Buddha nature, yeah. which we all possess. You know, it seemed as though he were positing that, that we all have this seed of the divine, this sort of mustard seed, you know, this microscopic seed that grows into this big flourishing tree. But then um, I'm also hearing that, um, I, I mean, or I would say that, do you think that gifts are asymmetrical? Hmm. That, you know, a particular talent or ability or area of insight is predominant and that, that gifts are asymmetrical and that they act as the portals through which we may, you know, dot, 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 point toward or discover or even inhabit the divine, you know, the sort of yeah. Buddha nature. 
Well, um, Paul certainly thought so. He he yeah he thought that the gifts were asymmetrical, that were um, you know, radically different um, in certain cases from person to person. And yeah, it was through that capacity that we participated in the reality of the divine fully. And the portal differed from person to person. And it was challenging to figure out where your portal was. It required um, something of an experimental life, um, you know, a deep engagement with, um, with existence, with other people, with, um, with culture, I suppose. You think um, that Paul is suggesting that? That's how I've always read it, yeah. I mean, I must say I have kind of a different view, I guess, than you two guys, because it seems to me that he's talking about the Pentecost. He's talking about this experience where the Holy Spirit descended on the disciples after the death of Jesus, this particular moment where kind of the advent of the Holy Spirit, at which point certain people began speaking in tongues, meaning that they could speak languages they didn't know. Well, and maybe... Yeah. Other people were suddenly healing people. I forget if that happened. Yeah, it did happen. He he was, I suppose, writing about that moment. That being said, First Corinthians, I think, predates uh, Acts of the Apostles, where the Pentecost is described. But there would have been knowledge of that event um, present in um, the sayings of Jesus that were being circulated through the early Jesus communities. Hmm. Uh, my understanding within the Tibetan Buddhist practice is that when a master dies, his gifts, if mm. you want to use that word, mm. um, are disseminated to his students. Mm. That when he mm. dies, those aspects, those asymmetrical portals that he manifested, yidams, I think they're called, are you know, that they stay with this plane and are disseminated mm. through those who mm. remain to carry on his work. Or her work, must, pardon me. I mean, I hate to say this about myself, but I do feel something like that happened with me and Ted Berrigan, whose uh, poems give the name to this podcast, when he died. I felt something sort of shifted in my... I felt like when he... Uh, knew me when I studied with him at City College. He never liked me very much, uh, had no particular affinity for me. But suddenly when he died, it was kind of like he entered inside me. I had some new intimate relationship with him. I became his disciple in a more real way. That's so interesting, Sparrow, That's because, you know, as you know, my reading of his book, The Sonnets, was a galvanizing and and it was i guess that reading of that book which i guess the circumstances of it flowing into my hands probably were somewhat circumstantial i guess mm. uh, was a profound one and i too feel a sense of inhabiting it's hard to talk about <laughs> but I too feel a kind of displacement of, of a Berrigan energy to myself in, in that experience of that close reading. And also Peter Gizzi and I used to talk about this, actually. Mm. Um, Peter, I think, feels that kind of sort of spiritual, spooky, poetic transmission mm -hmm. also. Yeah. yeah. With Ted Berrigan or in general? I believe that for Peter, and I, you know, I wouldn't want to speak for him, he feels that it is a possibility within poetic lineage and 
that he felt at least, you know, some time ago, a real sense of connection to Ted. Yeah, and I feel like I can pass it on to other people, like my friend Tom Devaney, who's a kind of great uh, Philadelphian poet, Irish Catholic guy of working class origins. I felt like I am passing on to Tom my connection to Ted, even though I don't, you know, it's not, I don't know, it's hard to talk about it without sounding like you're, you know, a horrible guru. (laughs) It doesn't feel that way to me, but it does feel like I do kind of in the back of my mind feel, yes, I can pass this to other people, people that need it. Well, maybe a a gift then will transcend the present. It will will transcend the physical object that's unexchanged. It becomes... um, it evolves into something much larger, more pervasive. Well, and also we're kind of talking about these gifts of the Holy Spirit, yeah. which are pretty similar, in a way kind of different than than earthly gifts in some ways. Yeah, the, the one thing that I think we also want to be sensitive to is that a gift may also have an aspect of a curse. Mm. I think that's super important is that oftentimes the receipt of a gift is Hmm. met with a sacrifice. What Um, do you mean sacrifice? Well, I mean, for example, in the case, I think we've brought up Tiresias in the past Hmm. um, in our podcasts and Tiresias um, for committing his faux pas of of letting people know that women derive greater pleasure in sexual congress than men do, mm-hmm. uh, that he was blinded by Zeus. And then it was Thera, who couldn't undo a curse, um, gifted Tiresias with second sight, with foreknowledge of the future, which itself mm. is a curse. <laughs> <laughs> or yeah, or the other uh, figure from mythology that occurs to me is Odin, who for his being given the gift of second sight, I guess he lost uh, one of his eyes, right? No, oh, I don't know. Odin is one-eyed. That's interesting. The gift is a curse. Well, that they're within a realm in which a gift, what appears to be a gift, can become a curse. For example, uh when you give somebody, and this is in the realm of the present, but it's one of those one of those places where the gift of this particular present has a insertion, has a uh, trembles at the edge of a gift, which is uh, when you give somebody a knife, you can't give somebody a knife. You have to say, hey, do you have a quarter? Do you have a dollar? Give me a dollar and I'll give you something. And then you can give them the knife. What do you mean? This is a superstition or something? This is uh, this is a nautical tradition among sailors. If you give somebody a knife, they have to give you some money, and then you give them the knife. Otherwise, the knife is accursed. Uh huh. Uh -huh. I'm also thinking of how you know the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The gift of being a Christian is a kind of curse. And I'm thinking of the famous quote from St. Augustine, who, uh, you know, before he accepted Christ, 
he had a you know pretty exciting life uh, lived uh, a kind of libertine uh, existence and he but his mother was a big christian so he knew eventually he'd probably become a christian so he would pray to god uh, lord give me strength but not yet I mean, maybe I'm misquoting it, you know. So, in other words, you 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 follow, you find the path, you go on the path, and then you're missing all the fun of not being on the path. So, you know, that's a, in a way a curse, the curse of being kind of pure of heart, right? Yeah, not yeah. being able to, to to insult people, to engage in much of comedy. Yeah, I know in the confessions in. Um he writes about the, the two wills, you know, just, just how resistant he was to accepting the call, the divine call, which you're right, had been implanted in him by his mother, Monica, who was a, um, a believing Christian. Um, and that, that struggle went on for quite some time because he was well aware of the renunciations that he would have to make. Mm. And, th- yeah. and then was, when he was in the garden, his, he, he finally in, in embraced, I suppose, this, uh, this way of being after the Augustinian wager. But in terms of the, the gift as, um, as a curse, I was thinking of Robert Frost's poem, The Gift Outright, in which um, the, uh, the, the land of the Americas is likened to, um, to a gift that ends up um, very much um, having a shadow. Uh, shall I read the poem? It's fairly... Yeah, funny. I almost uh, chose that poem. I, I don't know what to make of it. Um, I've never taught this poem. I've, I've read it a few times, but um, I, I, I love the title. Remember the title? Yeah, it's uh, unforgettable. I have a very fuzzy recollection of this poem, so that's terrific. Okay, so here it is. Um, I think let's see: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Yeah, it's a sonnet. Oh, the land was ours before we were the lands. She was our land more than a hundred years before we were her people. She was ours in Massachusetts and Virginia, but we were England's, still colonials, possessing what we still were unpossessed by, possessed by what we now no more possessed. Something we were withholding made us weak until we found out that it was ourselves we were withholding from our land of living, found salvation in surrender, such as we were we gave ourselves outright. The deed of gift was many deeds of war. To the land vaguely realizing westward, but still unstoried, artless, unenhanced, such as she was, such as she would become. Wow. I don't entirely understand the poem, but um, I, I, I get some of it. I think the, the land, this possession was a gift that that ended up um, leading to, I guess, exploitation of, of nature and geopolitical conflict. And Yeah, I'll bet, I'll bet that's a uh, later poem of Frost's, where he's mm. kind of moving out of his mete. And yeah, he probably, we've been here before, mete. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good point. <laughs> and that, you know, at a certain point when he became Robert Frost, he had to make like these public broad pronouncements and that probably falls within that kin because it 
I'd give that like a B minus C plus. I, don't, <laughs> I just like, come on, you know. I'm pretty sure that's the poem that he read at the Kennedy inaugural. Uh, yeah. Or he was going to read it. There was one poem he was going to read, but the glare at the rostrum, the glare on the podium um, was so intense that he couldn't read it. So he had to commit one of his poems. I'm sorry. He had to recite one of the, his own poems that he had committed to memory. And it just so happened, I'm pretty sure, to be this poem, The Gift Outright. No, no. This is my, uh, I don't know if we've discussed this before. Nothing Gold Can Stay. That was the poem he read that cursed i hope nobody's listening to every one of these podcasts if i did say this twice no that, you haven't and that cursed jfk he he the poem he recited from memory was nothing gold can stay something like that is the title oh so he wanted to he wanted to read the gift outright and that was the poem he, i think a so. super weird kind of merlinian moment where the poet <laughs> curses the king you know I, I have interesting. I miss that. Here, here it is. I looked it up. Robert Frost, then 86 years old, recited his poem, The Gift Outright. Kennedy requested Frost to read a poem at the inauguration, inauguration suggesting the gift outright, considered an act of gratitude towards Frost for his help during the campaign. So I guess he did recite the gift. Well, look it up again. Look, I think he, I think you were right that he he recited another poem by memory. He was gonna recite the gift outright. I had a something that I wanted to read that I received Sparrow from Peter. Oh. Yeah. I was looking into the first pages of this Word document um, on his writing on the Yasidi and their religious practices and there was a terrific uh, instance of the gift universe in his introduction, and I was wondering if I could read that. Yeah, well, let's just explain that these uh, this minority religion in Iraq that is being persecuted by the Muslims. Is that right? Something like that. Yeah, and particularly and, you know, most directly by ISIS, but sort of by, on all sides, the Yashidi have been an oppressed people. And some um, people consider them devil worshippers, yeah, Satan worshippers. They're, huh, yeah. they're a Zoroastrian holdout. Uh, okay, yeah. Okay, so this is from the introduction, and I'll just, this is the conclusion of his introduction. Surely we are post-progressivist enough by now to admit that literacy is at best a mixed blessing. The text has always, since about 4000 BC, been a means of enslaving humans to a status quo of the state and its official ideology or religion. By refusing literacy, the Yeshidis signified their refusal of law as opposition. Quote, the pen is in the hand of the enemy, as the old Persian proverb puts it. The magic of writing comprises both the blessing and the curse of Hermes Toth. According to a legend, when Toth tells Zeus he's invented letters, and that from now on, humans will never forget anything, Zeus answers, on the contrary, my son, now they'll forget everything. 
Writing is the death of memory, and hence, paradoxically, the origin of unknowing. The, quote, spell binds us to the power of, uh, of the authority. In this sense, in an oral tradition, not illiterate or preliterate, the Yeshidis can be seen as deliberately, not accidentally, free. In their so-called scripture, the Kitab Ajilwa, Malek Tuas, the peacock angel, says, I lead to the straight path without a revealed book. I direct aright my beloved and my chosen ones by unseen means. Islam calls itself the religion of the book. It admits that Judaism and Christianity are also religions of the book. All others, bookless, are illegitimate. But Yazidism goes farther. It rejects the book. It opposes the book. In this diacritical opposition is formed its true essence and glory. Mm. And and that's uh, we should specify that's Peter Lamborn Wilson. You didn't uh, mention his name. Who's a kind of a mentor figure to me and Sam. I don't know about Andrew. Yeah, and that's from a book that's unpublished and that we should see published called Cado Pavonis, which was the translation of which is the Peacock's Tale. T a i l. Yeah, the subtitle is Esoteric Antinomianism in the Yezidi Tradition. So we're talking, we're back to the uh, area of blessing and curse as uh, simultaneous, this time in the case of uh, written language, letters. Yeah, and of that sort of weird flicker between Robert Frost wanting to read from the podium this poem and then you know, because the light, the glare of the light, being unable to see, and mm. then reciting from memory. So it's a little bit at that hinge. The gift of memory. I mean, my goodness, um, memory is um, de- decaying, I suppose, right? Um, that's what I hear people say compared to the capacity to memorize that was a little bit more common centuries ago. Mm. Mm. Well, I think much more than that, a little bit, um, perhaps, are inner lives are also in this period our memory got shot maybe by writing but now mm. what we're losing is our inner lives through mm. the um the end of boredom <laughs> yeah it's funny i maybe because we're in this confinement of coronavirus i'm thinking a lot about prison and how people in prison have this certain kind of freedom they don't have to work and they can be they can really indulge their memory. They, their memory can be explored in a way that, that most of us are too busy to do. And uh, that whole kind of pre-literate life is uh, available to them. Well, maybe I should read my poem since we're all reading our poems. Um, this is by this guy, John Clare, who is uh, a somewhat little-known 19th century English poet. I think he's born in 1793 and dies, I believe, in 1864. And he was the son of a farmer. And his biographer, whose name I have forgotten, says, 
John Clare is the greatest laboring class poet of English history. He was a real farmer, I guess, and he wrote lots of poems about sort of the tragedy of industrialization and the loss of this bucolic countryside. And that's, I'm just going to read part of this poem because it's kind of pretty long. He struggled with um, mental illness, uh, insanity. He was institutionalized a few times. And part of his struggle had to do with the fact that he uh, had fallen passionately in love with uh, a woman who then rejected him, but who he remained um, obsessed with and who um, comes mm. up in poetry um, time and time again um, by the first name of Mary. When he finally found where she was uh, supposedly living, he walked there. It was a several-day walk to learn that um, she had died. And that's um, when he went insane? Uh, he struggled with um, madness, melancholia. Again, he was uh, institutionalized on a few occasions. Uh, he was a great poet of the open road. He did a lot of walking, um, week-long mm. journeys, um, struggled with poverty and starvation. Uh, and he, you know, he kept a travel log. He kept a diary, a day book of his walking journeys, which is just as poetic as any of his poems. But part of it are terrifying. He, you know, he struggled with hunger, and at one point he was forced to eat grass on the side of the road for nourishment. Wow. Yeah, he, he lived quite a life. It was a tragic life, but a very intense one. Poetic. He never married, never he, had kids. He had a wife named Patty, and I believe children... And she was um, she very understanding of his obsession with his first love. Huh. You know, she ended up being the one to pick him up and bringing bring him back home on multiple occasions, and you know, try to bring him back to health. Huh. One thing that's interesting is that I wonder if within the gift dimension or dynamic, his capacity to fashion sentences or phrases and to to have poetic speech was in some way at the cost of his cost of going insane also so. i have a theory or i've sort of observed in friends of mine who are poets that uh, the obsession with some unattainable woman is often a poetic trait that at least for men uh-huh proven tradition yeah, Beatrice, mm -hmm. which is all, which is also out of a Provençal or troubadour impulse. Yeah. Well, that um, desire yeah. to write a poem, to kind of idealize something, you see a tree and you think, my God, that tree is so beautiful. I've got to write a poem about it. It's a perfect tree. You know, that the compulsion attaches itself inevitably to some human being. And then there's trouble. You know, it works fine with a tree. It's the uh, the dark side of romanticism, right? That this it's it's never going to be attained. It will always be a forever receding horizon of possibility. It will end up torturing. That's that's the primary difference between romantic poetry and the blues, right? The blues begins on the the blue note, the dissonant note, a, a mark of brokenness, where the, mm. the romantic poetry yearns for wholeness and reintegration that um, never quite happens. Well, I was going to say that that sort of female worship is mm. now considered to be really a form of misogyny. Yeah. That idealization of women, and it sort of separates. It's a form of separation. Um, and is also, of course, it's the curse of Plato. 
Mm-hmm. Who was a big romantic. So I'm going to read the first part of this poem. It's called The Moors, M-O-R-E-S. I should have looked up. I think he means Moors, M-O-O-R-S. The Northern African Muslim population or the Moors as geographical terrestrial terrain? Yeah, the terrain, the latter, the, uh, the place, you know, in England where you're always standing on some overlook looking out on the gorgeous moors, which is what he's doing in this poem. I did some friend of mine when I went to England, she told me, what you have to do, you have to go to the moor behind the Bronte's house. You know, that moor is magical. So we went, my wife and I, before we were married, went to the Bronte's house. I was too cheap to go inside to pay like the two pounds to get inside. So she went inside, I stood outside, then we both went to the moor. And then I meditated. I think maybe she didn't meditate. And behind me, I felt this big, ominous guy in a frightening overcoat kind of lurking behind me. I could feel him while I was meditating, this kind of dangerous energy, who I guess was Heathcliff? Yeah, I think that that was Hermes. Hermes (laughs) Toth. Yeah, that was... I think it was John Clare or, or the Apostle Paul, but I'm going to say that as well. <laughs> okay, so John Clare. I just want to say, you know, give my respect to Robert Frost for attempting in 14 lines to express the entire history of the United States and to talk about the meaning of our nation, even to name two of the states. Maybe at that point, like early in a sonnet, you're thinking, I got to finish, I got to fill this up somehow. Maybe I'll just name all the states. Hey, Sparrow, I looked it up, um, and he, he had planned to read. He wrote a poem for the occasion called Dedication, started to read it, was unable to do so. Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson tried to shield the podium, shield him from the sun, but he still couldn't make out the language. So he proceeded to recite the gift outright from memory. Huh? So oh, I, I, my whole theory about him cursing uh, Kennedy is uh, an urban legend inside my own mind that I invented. Indeed. Yeah. Okay, you ready for this poem? The Moors. Far spread, the moory ground, a level scene. Be spread with rush and one eternal green that never felt the rage of blundering plow. Though centuries wreathed springs blossom on its brow, still meeting plains that stretch them far away in unchecked shadows of green, brown, and gray, unbounded freedom ruled the wandering scene, nor fence of ownership crept in between to hide the prospect of the following eye. Its only bondage was the circling sky, one mighty flat undwarfed by bush and tree spread its faint shadow of immensity and lost itself which seemed to eke its bounds in the blue mist the orison's edge surrounds now this sweet vision of my boyish hours free as spring clouds and wild as summer flowers is faded all a hope that blossomed free and hath been once no more shall ever be enclosure came and trampled on the grave 
of labor's rights and left the poor a slave and memory's pride ere want to wealth did bow in is both the shadow and the substance now the sheep and cows were free to range as then where change might prompt nor felt the bonds of men cows went and came with evening morn and night to the wild pasture as their common right and sheep unfolded with the rising sun heard the swains shout and felt their freedom won i love it john clare it's all one sentence that must be why john ashbury liked it there's no punctuation it's just like one unending line of thought that kind of meanders back and forth the absence of punctuation is that a grammatical technique to um express the pre-enclosed geographical reality of his boy that he associates with his, <laughs> with his boyhood that you know angus fletcher this um literary critic writes about the um the absence of a horizon line in um in john Clare's poetry this huh. radical geographical openness that he that he uses grammatical experimentation like the absence of traditional punctuation to um to convey and uh, yeah, it's similar, it's, similar to Emily Dickinson, John Clare was um, poorly edited over the decades and various punctuation was inserted. It's only removed in recent decades to restore his poems to their um, original form. Yeah. Hmm. One thing that's interesting is that Clare frankly articulates the horizon, the sense of a horizon. And I think what's interesting is that there's a an echo or a rhyme between the Frost poem and, and John Clare. They're both dealing in words with how to deal with the landscape and also mm. a landscape that is divided, you know, states into sense mm. of like, mm. interest, you know, boundaries. And, and seem to have the kind of the similar idea, that, an idea that I was kind of toying with when I was thinking about gift. You know, I was thinking more in a kind of, Jewish way than in a Christian way, thinking about the Sabbath, which every week comes uh, yes. for religious Jews, and I celebrate oh, the Sabbath. Thinking about Judaism, not Christianity, and about the Jewish Sabbath, which comes every week as a kind of gift for devout Jews. And the idea, as I understand it from a mystical point of view, is at that point during the Sabbath, you spend no money. And everything is kind of a gift. You, you're in this gift economy where nothing costs anything. Everything's just given to you by God. And that was the original world that we lived in, if you believe the Bible. God created the Garden of Eden as this gift for man, and then later for woman, too. And that's how things naturally would be before the onset of money, which creates this... Uh, element of exchange where you need to pay for things everything was originally a gift i think that's what john clare seems to be suggesting that and it was Robert outside Fletcher. the again outside the realm of exchange yeah that there was no way to pay back also well i suppose in the garden well, that, of eden maybe you pay back god through praise through love you know maybe that 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there is a giving back. I mean, there's a quality to the gift, for example, in, in the context of somebody being gifted. Mm. Uh, for example, in playing a musical instrument um, like uh, Johnny B. Good, mm. or like, you know, the legend of Robert Johnson, etc. And there's a quality feels like it's uniquely for you mm. um, to be gifted that asymmetry. And that, therefore, this is what I would postulate, is that Therefore, a gift is a, is a form of lesson or that it's a form of direction and that one needs to be responsive and responsible and careful of the gift. Mm -hmm. You have um, to kind of uh, uh, nourish the gift. Let's yeah, say whatever, a uh, concert pianist, you have to practice every day. It's, it's something you... It's not just passive, you kind of collaborate with the gift. Yeah, and sort of protect it and explore it. You know, in the same way in our relationship with the land, we want to mm -hmm. protect the land and explore it and be in a collaboration with it. Yeah. I mean, one of the things Adam did, it seems to me, is uh, name everything. You know, God gives everything for free, and then the human role is to give it all a name. Preferably not to write it down. Yeah, as yeah. Bob Dylan wrote in his song, God gave, man gave names to all the animals in Slow the beginning. Coming from 1979. Yeah, yeah there's, the, there's the idea that the great masters, they don't write anything down, which would hmm. be true of uh, Jesu Christi. Right. Um, the one they call Jesus, right. and the true of Socrates mm. would be Mohammed. true of Buddha, Krishna, yes. Muhammad, peace be upon him. Peace. Muhammad didn't write the the Quran. No, that he recited the Quran from memory, but it was written down later. It's funny that Moses wrote the Torah, though. He's the one exception. Yeah. You know that there used to be a slogan in the 1960s, Jesus saves, Moses invests. And uh, <laughs> that kind of comes to mind, you know. It's like Jesus is oral, uh, Moses is written. And, you know, when I studied with the Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe everything the Bible says, and they believe that Moses wrote the account of his own death. In Deuteronomy, yeah, because I think it says it. And I think it says in Deuteronomy, this is all written by Moses. So well, they Moses at some it. point, doesn't he climb like a, a big promontory, like a hill or something like that? And he's able in the distance to be able to see the land of um, milk and right. cookies. But he's, he's unable, it, it is foredoomed or whatever, foresworn that he will not... Um, himself enter. Yeah, he's. Uh, honey. He did something wrong, cursed. didn't he? Yeah, yeah he did something right. really uh, obscurely wrong. You know, it was something like God said to him, "Take this stick, hit it against the rock, and say, in the name of God, I will make water pour out of the rock." And Moses hit the rock, and he said, "Water, come out of the rock." <laughs> you know, he didn't say, "In the name of God." Something. It's something that minor. Also, I think Moses seemed a little annoyed at that point, too. I think people were, like, rebelling because they had no water. They were in the desert. And he was like, okay, enough with this. Here's some water, you know. <laughs> he wasn't, so he was not scrupulous in his attention to the gardening and the care of his gift from God. 
Yeah, he didn't recognize that the gift was from above, not from himself. I mean, that seemed to be the the meaning. It's a little obscure, like maybe Judaism always is. Maybe everything is, but Judaism always seems particularly... Well, you know, there's a, uh, a proverb, three Jews, five opinions. Oh, two and that, Jews, three views, isn't it? Two Jews, three views? <laughs> the that's version. The translation. But apparently that um, proverb exists in um, Arabic, too. Three Muslims, four opinions. So it's it's not only uh, Jews. But it, yeah, I think it does seem like that's what Moses was doing wrong. I'd like to try an, an idea for size um, that pertains to the gift. And that's this... Uh, I'm not. I'm not drawing this from any tradition. It's just my my own sense of the uh, the word as a word concept. That one often proclaims that something is a gift years later, in, in mm. hindsight. That the the form of the gift um, given is often ambiguous. It has an ambiguous mm. status. Uh, it might even be seen as the epitome of darkness. Of um, you know, mm. uh, as a curse. Yeah. But it. It's later referred to as, as a gift. You'll hear, hear people um, mm. talking about personal loss um, you know, after they've recovered. Um, oh, that was a gift because um, it uh, bore certain fruit in, in mm. terms of w- wisdom or uh, new insight. And there was this, um, this movie, the short movie that uh, I saw when I was maybe in um, ninth grade. And it's called The Gift, and this notion of a retrospective uh, awareness of some tragedy as being um, a gift um, is central to the film. And it was acted in and directed and produced by the singer of Jane's Addiction, Farrell, and it was released in 1993. But, you know, just uh, painting with broad brushstrokes, it's about... um, Perry Farrell and his girlfriend, Casey Nicoli, who um, are living on Venice Beach, and they are heroin addicts, and um, she ends up um, overdosing. The The film, I think, romanticizes heroin, unfortunately, but uh, after um, Casey is gone, it's then that he, he realizes um, the gift of her life in a series of, of broken-hearted longings for uh for what was, more importantly, what could have been. And uh, there's a, there's a, um, I'm not going to spoil the film, but um, there's a very striking, including sequence I, uh, I have a lot of recollection of. Hmm. No, you know, it's been decades since I've watched it, but I just wanted to float that idea out there. That, that you're talking about like things that, when they happened, really seemed disastrous, disastrous. terrible. But then, oh, that was a gift, or uh, you know, it was a gift in disguise, a blessing in mm. disguise. I didn't realize it until later. Um, I just think the word gift is um, often used in that way. Yeah. Yeah, there's a Zen parable of the man who has um, a son, and it's a long sequence of events, but his son breaks a leg, mm. and every people come to him and they say, oh, that's so sad, your son broke his leg, he can't help you herd the horses. So all the horses run away. Oh, they and then he says, um, "Oh yeah, you know who knows? Maybe maybe it's bad. Who knows?" And then all the horses run away, and he's like, "Oh, they come to him and they say, oh, isn't it tragic? All your horses have run away.'" And he says, "Yeah, yeah, it seems sad, but who knows?" And then there's a war that's declared by the country within which this man is living, and the 
sergeants and Ajit tropes or whatever of the army come to collect men to fight in the war and they see the son and his leg is broken. So his son is spared from going to the war and they've come to collect his horses because they need their cavalry and all his horses are dispersed. And so it turned out that what appeared to be a misfortune is actually a blessing. It's mm -hmm. a gift. A great illustration of the point. Fragmentary, but yeah, I was trying. No, really oh, no it's good. I, I remember that story. I love that story. Well, it certainly happened in my life, I'll say that. And also when you get to a certain age, it is weird that your life becomes kind of a story. Like you start to see it more as a story, like it has a plot kind of. And, um, and everything seems necessary to it. All the parts that seemed arbitrary while they were happening suddenly seem... Uh, to be directed by some, by fate. But what happened to me is I flunked out of Cornell. My girlfriend cheated on me. My parents uh, disowned me. <laughs> and, um, and that's why I've been uh, meditating the last 46 years, you know, because uh, everything fell apart and therefore I had to get them back together, you know, so like it just happened see, that way. Do you see that as a gift on some level now? Do, or, yeah, yeah, I mean, it seems, I mean, like, I sometimes think, like, wow, if I hadn't flunked out of Cornell, because I, I was a biology major, forgot to mention, that's why I flunked out. So the logical thing to do would be to switch to being an English major and become, like, a kind of poet, like an academic Ivy League poet, which to me is, like, worse, I mean, better to be dead on the road hitchhiking than to end up uh, as one of those kind of civilized poets, you know? So, at least for <laughs> me, you know what I mean? So I just yeah, think, like, wow, I really dodged the bullet there. In the, um, in the Cognates of Gift, uh, which is a fairly common gift as a, as a word, is fairly common to the Scandinavian uh, languages and also to the Frisian, mm -hmm. you know, where the Anglo-Saxons gift is a word that means gift. Um, although in Old English, it actually means the dowry or bride price is oh. the gift. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But in Old Norse, gift also means good luck. Huh, that's interesting. Good luck. Oh. Yeah. Well, I think I want to uh, read some of my theories here. Is that okay? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Uh, I'm going to sort of read through this. Well, one of my thoughts is that I think that Orthodox Jews don't give gifts. Do they, wait, wait, wait. Do they not give gifts or do they not give presents? You know, there's yeah, a maybe presence. Yeah, I don't, I don't and see. I, yeah, that was one of the a, things. Yeah, I was thinking about too was the difference between gift and present. Yeah, it's super important. My mom, she was very careful about definitions, and certain words have a classist appropriation or sense of distinction. A gift, you know, according to my mom, can only be given by institutions and huh. by countries that you know that they have to come from the tribe and so you know for example a grant is not a gift because a grant is something that you've asked for and so it's still within the realm of exchange that a huh. gift again is something that as they say comes out of nowhere hmm. does that make sense I was thinking when you were talking about this before that in the, I guess for most Americans, when do we give gifts? Two occasions uh, on Christmas and I guess Hanukkah if you're Jewish. 
and um, for birthdays. And birthdays, you don't exchange gifts. And for Christmas, you do exchange gifts pretty much always. My mom would say, those aren't gifts. Those are presents. I'm giving you a present. Present involves exchanges. Yeah, it's still within the realm of birthdays and Christmas and stuff. There's a reciprocity that's kind of assumed, I believe. It's still within society. It's still within an ethical realm. It's still within, quote-unquote, what's fair. Yeah, and that was one of the things I was thinking about was um, that I saw Swami Satyadananda once, and he said, you know, a husband says to a wife, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. And Swami Satyadananda said, that's not love, that's business. Yeah, 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 that's barter. That's a present in the sense that you're talking about. Yes, which I believe to be the correct sense. And I did want to talk about the fact, I guess this sort of sermon I'm about to give is based on the the fact that I suggested that we discuss gifts. Why? Because we're living during this time of the coronavirus lockdown. And what do people need? That was what we posited last time when we were talking. I think this was off the air. What do people need now? And I said, well, really, they need the spirit of a gift, the spirit of giving. And why? Because... People, among other, to make a very literal point, people are in the supermarkets attempting to buy every single roll of toilet paper on earth. They're thinking, I want it all for me. I want to have all the toilet paper. I don't want anyone else to have the toilet paper. And the spirit of the gift, as I see it, is like you suddenly, after listening to this podcast, suppose you're a toilet paper hoarder who for some reasons listens to philosophical podcasts, then you think to yourself, my God, I've been wrong. I'm going to go out and I'm going to leave toilet paper rolls on every single person's doorstep that I can find. I'm going to give, I'm not going to take. And in the, basically, this is the whole concept of yoga as I understand it is that your entire life is a gift to the divine. You do something. The gift of life is a common phrase. The gift of life. But this particular concept in yoga is more like uh, what they call bhakti yoga, the yoga of devotion, is the yoga of giving. That like you do something. I'm talking right now. As I'm talking, theoretically, if I'm a great bhakti yogi, I'm offering every word I say to the divine. And there's a story, like my favorite yogic story, is this woman is a great devotee of Krishna. I mean, a fanatic devotee. A deep lover of Krishna might be a better way to put it. One day, Krishna comes to her house. The real Krishna comes to her house. And she has a whole bunch of bananas. She wants to offer these bananas to Krishna, who's her guest in her house. So she's peeling the bananas. And she's so in love, so enraptured with uh, Krishna that she peels the bananas and then she offers the banana peels to Krishna by mistake, forgetting. She sort of forgets where she is. She's so in love. Instead of the bananas, she gives him the banana peels. And he says, you know, this is the greatest devotion, you know, because it's done with this spirit of pure, such love you even forget where you are. And and that's... Beyond calculation. And that's the situation we're in, you know, all of us as people. We don't have great bananas to give to the Lord. We have only our crappy banana peels 
but it's how you give them. You give them with this sense of uh, pure love, then that's what's important. It's not what you give, it's kind of how it's given. And this, uh, now I'm going to read the bath mantra. This is the mantra we do every day in Ananda Marga after we take can a bath. I, can I interject mm-hmm. for a moment? So what you're saying is that our banana peels are <laughs> our toilet paper. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, they can be used in certain circumstances as toilet paper, yeah. banana peels. I've, I've heard that the apogee, the zenith of giving, uh, and quoting from, I believe, the Bible, albeit, you know, in my internally canterized way, is that the that giving should be to give as though the left hand does not know what the right hand mm-hmm. is doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It might be the same concept as that banana peel story. To give without self-consciousness, without calculation, would be a good uh, definition. Right, without deciding the value of something, or which, which then, you know, you are in the barter dimension or the dimension of exchange. Yeah. So then every day after we do our bath, we turn towards the sun, or if there's uh, it's at night, you can use a light bulb. And we recite this sort of mantra, I guess it is. Yeah, mantra, bath mantra. Pitra Purusha Bhyanamaha Rishi Devi Bhyanamaha Brahmar Panam Brahmahavir Brahmaganal Brahmanahutam Brahmeva Tenagantavyam Brahmakarma Samadina. And the translation is something like I offer my respects to the ancestors, I offer my respects to the great saints and inventors of history the act of offering is brahma that which is offered is brahma the one to whom the offering is made is brahma the person making the offering is brahma one who offers all their actions to brahma will merge with brahma when the work is done (laughs) brahma being basically god i guess you could say maybe the one might be in a better translation and then the big thing in that hmm. terrain is when you've got Brahma, and then there's a hyphen, hmm. and then it says Atman. Oh yeah, Brahma Atman. Like that <clears throat> was that was when the wires touched. Right? <laughs> well, the Atman is like the self within you. It's like the Brahma within you. Hmm. The Atman is the individual entity. It's kind of like there's God, and then within us is God. And that God, that that part of God that's in us, which is also infinite, is, is Atman. I don't know. I don't really understand this. Now, I'm not a, a knowledgeable person about it, but that's what I think the Atman is. Mm. I touched on this Lewis Hyde, and I let me just uh, let me just very very swiftly run over this this section, mm. this initial section, which is called the gift of Hermes. And um, so he talks about different kinds of chance encounters. Mm. Uh, for example, Sparrow, when you were dodging around looking for nothing much at all and landed that CD. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is quoting from C.S. Pierce. Now, I think C.S. Pierce was an American philosopher. Am I correct? Who I don't know. was kind of a phenomenologist mm. at any rate. He was a kind of a contemporary of 
William James, but I'm not sure, mm -hmm. maybe a little mm -hmm. later. But the quote is, chance itself pours in at every avenue of sense. Mm. It is of all things most obtrusive. Like chance is constantly operating in our dimension. And then he goes on, and I'm just kind of quoting from what I, you know, what I underlined. If only preconception does not block the avenues of sense. So, so that preconception is that place between the left and right hands. Accidental finds are all about us. So the supposition is that gifts are all about us. You know, mm. if we have new eyes, not new vistas, but new eyes, you know, to quote Proust or whatever. And that and that these these gifts are called her mayon, which means literally gift of Hermes as a generous thief, uh, which is an interesting, uh, you know, interesting cant. And then he quotes a guy named Carl Kerenye, who records how in a book that he had lost, that disappeared on a boat trip, he writes, does Hermes wish to play with me again? I am left with the feeling of being stolen from something uncanny, a vague sense of change of circumstance, truly something hermetic. Mm -hmm. Now, I cite that passage because it, it has that very thing that is part of our mission statement, which is to plumb the uncanny. And then finally, you know, there's this story that hides sights. And I'll just read you this paragraph because I think that it's important for us to hear. For the more typical tone, we could take the first of Hermes' own chance encounters a newborn babe stepping from his mother's home, quote, he crossed the threshold of that roomy cave and found a tortoise, end quote. At the <laughs> threshold, at the boundary between underworld and upper world, at the eschew spot of crossroads chance, like Picasso at the rubbish heap, this is Picasso uh, speaking of the circumstances under which he arrived at the seat of the bicycle with the <laughs> with the handlebars attached to its head, um, you know, and his instant realization that the two could be combined and made into a bull. He found quote a tortoise and got possession of boundless wealth. Not everyone would have made something of that encounter. What's out there? Just an old tortoise. But with Hermes, coincidence turns fertile. But the pervasiveness of the toilet paper is what kind of what I want to point toward, is that, that gift, the state of gift, is as obtrusive, but is a constant within our sensorium. And that these, that these gifts are beyond morality, they're beyond ethics, that they are these holes in, the, in our social fabric, that they're openings, and that these are the possibilities of moving forward. These are the asymmetries that allow us to evolve, to change.
to exchange in a real sense. That's how I found that John Clare poem, by just opening the book at random and putting my finger down. I mean, I'm certainly someone that's very interested, involved with chance procedures as gifts from the universe or from from somewhere. I don't even know where they're from, actually, to be honest. <laughs> but yeah, I do. I kind of I'm in that camp. The yeah. following the directions of chance. Of course, you got to be careful. And collaborating. <laughs> Yeah, that we're in a state of collaborating with the god Hermes. I read somewhere that John Cage would cheat. You know, if he didn't like the first uh, word he found by chance, he'd, he'd find another one. He'd do it a second time. Why don't we just nod at each other instead of talking from now yeah. on? Like beyond the book is speech and beyond the speech is davening. Yeah. <laughs> The last thing I wanted to to give us is this novel by Vladimir Nabokov entitled appropriately The Gift. And this too, similar Sparrow to your lucky find, was made when I was cruising the bookshelves looking for the Lewis Hyde book, similarly entitled The Gift. Is it is the novel by Nabokov written in the late 30s? When he was living in Berlin, and the title of this this novel is called The Gift, and I haven't read it, but nevertheless, seeing as how we're living in a time in which a fascist rise seems to be lipping at the edges of our screen, of you know, at the edges of what we are. I guess I would just like you to listen to the first couple sentences. I did want to read the quotation that begins the first chapter of this novel, The Gift, the and then to read the, the first sentence, which is always terrific and interesting to read the first sentence of any novel. And in this case, I think I'm going to read two sentences. But the quote I think you'll like is... An oak is a tree, a rose is a flower, a deer is an animal, a sparrow is a bird, mm. Russia is our fatherland, death is inevitable. And that's from P. Smirnovsky from his book, A Treatise of Russian Grammar. <laughs> that's really funny. Yeah, the Russians love sparrows, by the way, Sparrow. I didn't know that. And I was yeah. there, too. I never noticed. Oh, really? Yeah. There's a lot of Russian proverbs and stuff that involve sparrows. So let me read to you this first sentence. A cloudy but luminous day, toward four in the afternoon, on April the 1st, 1920 Parentheses, a foreign critic once remarked that while many novels, most German ones, for example, begin with a date, it is only Russian authors who, in keeping with the honesty particular to our literature, omit the final digit. End parentheses, a moving van, very long and very yellow, hitched to a tractor that was also yellow with hyper 
trophied rear wheels and a shamelessly exposed anatomy pulled up in front of number seven Tannenberg Street in the west part of Berlin. The van's forehead bore a star-shaped ventilator. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.